On this week's Bet the Process, Jeff and I have a very interesting discussion with Keith White, the Executive Director of the National Council for Problem Gambling. This episode's a little different, but we learn a lot about the initiatives that the NCPG is involved in and some of the issues endemic with problem gambling and operators. So with that, let's start the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Bet the process. Welcome to the podcast. Bet the process. It's not that typical cookie cutter nonsense. If you came just for picks, you're in the wrong place. Find a talent with the narrative to make a strong case. Instead of blindly assuming a team must be tanking, we're looking for the edge of Massey Peabody rankings. Crunching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. We now welcome in Keith White, the executive director of the National Council on Problem Gambling to the Bet the Process podcast. And obviously, um, as a gambling podcast, you know, I think we've we've talked a lot about the the merits of gambling, but obviously talking a little bit about the 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 challenges and whatnot is something we've actually tried to talk a little bit about, but this is probably going to be a little bit different. So um Keith, I'm gonna and I'm gonna let Rufus lead a lot of this, but tell us a little bit about yourself and and how you got into the role you're in. Yeah, thanks, Jeff, and thanks, thanks, Rubis, uh, for having me on here. Uh, it's 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 awesome. Yeah, this this is going to be fun. Um, so I have uh, been the executive director of the National Council on Problem Gambling uh, since uh, 1998. So this is my I think 25th year, if my my math is right. Uh, prior to that, I was director of research for the American Gaming Association uh, from '95 to '98. Uh, so I've been doing gambling policy, uh, you know, almost almost 30 years now. Um, you know, I kicked around in DC a little bit before that, you know, blah, blah, blah. Folks, folks don't, don't, don't care about that as much. But the rule, the, the TLDR on the National Council on Problem Gambling is that we were founded in 1972. And in 1972, our founders said we need to be neutral on legalized gambling um, because they didn't want people with gambling problems to feel that same shame or stigma about reaching out for help or even asking a question about, you know, maybe do I have a gambling problem? Um, then and now, you know, there's a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of uh, kind of shame and stigma around this issue. It's also now, 50 plus years later, been very helpful to be neutral because everyone else has gotten in the gambling business as well. So, you know, state agencies, tribal governments, leagues, you know, we've got a whole bunch of players today that we didn't have back in 1972, but our neutrality has stayed the same. We want to be um, the, the organization that kind of holds down the center that anybody can talk to and that we work with all the stakeholders. So that, that's a, that's a little bit about us and a little about me. What is, so what does that work entail exactly? Is this mostly at the policy level? At the national level? Yes. So, um, you can, you can kind of divide our work into two broad buckets. One would be the um, problem gambling side of things. And that's much more of the traditional nonprofit, you know, we run the 800 Gambler Helpline nationwide, which had 275,000 calls, texts, and chats last year. We train gambling addiction counselors. We try and get you know medical schools to have classes on problem gambling. You know, it's it's so it's it's tr- it's prevention of gambling addiction. It's treatment uh, research. Um, you know, stuff like that, like healthcare, if you will. For the problem gambling side is mostly about healthcare, but then on the responsible gambling side, uh, sort of the other half of our work, if you will, is with uh, people who operate gambling. So um, not just the, the operators and, you know, but we work across all the verticals, 
Um, you know, we certainly push into things like video gaming, you know, loot boxes, social casinos, stuff like that. But um, on the responsible gambling side, it's all about if you're going to offer gambling, do, you know, try and do so in a way that's going to that's going to minimize harm. Right. So it's training employees, it's developing policies and procedures, and it's getting into, you know, I think some of the things, Rufus, you and I talked about, you know, the differences between these verticals. You know, and as, as for example, online gambling expands and online I casino, you know, how do you try and, and adjust and mitigate that risk? And so, um, you know, so those are the two kind of big, big areas, I think, for us. So you all are not federally funded, correct? You're fun- funded by members and donors. Does that, who are the, who are the people that are funding you? Are they kind of, do they run the gamut across the industry? Yeah. So it's interesting. So as you would expect, the majority of our, our corporate or organizational members are, uh, are gambling companies. And, you know, and like I said, we've got representation in all the verticals. So most, but not all the commercial casinos, many, you know, sort of, I think five or six of the leading tribes, a couple of the online sports bidding operators, you know, we've probably got 20 or so lotteries. So in, in each of the verticals, it's, it's quite frankly, you know, the people we think of is, is the ones that are you know, the, the most public facing, the ones that are most interested in responsible gambling. And every vertical, you know, we don't have 100% of every vertical. So not every online sports betting company is a member of ours, you know, and so on and so forth. There are non-gaming members. So we've got gaming regulatory agencies. We've got tribal and state government. You know, we have treatment centers, the leagues, you know. <laughs> so I, I think many of your listeners would kind of consider the leagues as part of the gambling industry now. And and, and I think they are, they're in the middle of it. But um, we have all the major leagues except NHL. Who are members of the national council so it's it's not just gambling operators it, and even within that it's it's a broad basket but it's um you know it's other organizations too so i understand um you know the desire to be neutral but i think the biggest to me the biggest issue in all of this is just the misaligned incentives between yeah. operators and and your mission right and in, in reducing harm from problem gambling and just just because you know operators like vip hosts people like that they're they're supposed to drive players to to give action and yep. which has negative expectation and the best players for the casino are going to be the problem gamblers. They're going to be the people that lose, have the most money and lose the most money. So how, I mean, yeah. how do we get around that? Yeah. Well, and you're absolutely right. The, the incentives uh, on an individual level are often misaligned, you know, no question. It's at the broader level where I think there's a little bit more alignment than people think. So while an individual host job may be to, to maximize revenue at, at, a, at a corporate level, at a policy level, they do have to balance that with minimizing harm because um, while there's a profit imperative, this is also a licensed and regulated industry. And what we've seen in jurisdictions around the world is if the industry doesn't take you know, responsible gambling at least a little bit seriously, that license can be revoked. Um, you know, that they, the taxes can go up, that, they're, that they have less freedom to operate, less freedom to expand. So, I mean, just in, in the moment we're in, I would say that there's a lot more interest right now in responsible gambling than we've ever had before, because, of course, many of the operators want to get into uh, iCasino. Many Americans knew someone who bet sports, right? You know, so so going into online sports betting, I don't think was a big leap because almost everybody knew someone who, you know, placed a bet on the NCAA tournament, you know, blah, blah, blah. Most people don't know someone who's got an online, who plays online roulette. That the, the participation is a lot lower. And so I think the one of the reasons that's driving the industry to work with us and it's driving, you know, it gives us the opportunity to work with the industry is that to continue to expand, they have to be seen doing something serious on responsible gambling. 
so you know, I would say, yeah. So there's a, there's an ethical imperative and there's an economic imperative as well, um, because those if those social costs get too high, there will be you know there'll be a backlash. It's going to happen. It's hard in the U.S. because we're pretty laissez-faire about it, but we've seen you know the crackdown on gambling in, in the U.K., uh, the prohibition of credit cards, the ban on advertising, the stake reduction in machines cost operators in the U.K. about seven hundred million pounds. So that's a seven there's seven hundred million reasons why operators in the U.K take responsible gambling really seriously now. But they've made a lot of money first. Yeah, but- no, I think, yeah, there's there, there's no question. There's a, there's a ton of harm and that, yeah, the, the incentives are misaligned. And, so- and the industry has always been, you know, relatively predatory. Only recently are they doing responsible gambling. In some cases, it's still absolutely lip service. I mean, we're very, we're very pragmatic about that. Right. I mean, it, to me, it seems like what they care about is the perception that they're addressing problem gambling rather than especially to legislators and all that, rather than actually doing it. And I know examples of, you know, of people like that have people that have been told, Hey, don't do this because then we have to report you to problem gambling. You don't, you know, it's kind of like that kind of thing is it's, it's like, they know where that line is. And, and so, yeah, yeah, you're right. And and so uh, that's, you know, a lot of our work is just continuing to push the needle, continue to raise awareness, continuing to kind of, try and educate that out of the industry because it is, it can be profitable without being predatory, but that's not the traditional model. And, you know, and so one of the things we talked about in in Vegas was, was big data. And I think the more, the more data these folks collect on individual betting habits and, you know, you're, you're learning everything about your players, the harder it is going to be for them to say, Oh, we had no idea. Jeff, you know, was, was betting 50 times his annual income. Because it's like, of course you do. You've got all this data right here. I, and, I, and so, you know, information is power, but that data, I think, may also, there's responsibility there, if not liability, for really, really abusing your customers. And so, so you know, and, and, that, and those are levers we're really actively pushing on. The more they know, the more obligation they may have to uh, spot some of those really egregious markers. Is, is this akin to like a bartender or a bar being sued because they oversold or charged for over serving somebody where they, they knew that this person was clearly intoxicated. And then the person goes out and drives home and crashes into a car and kills somebody. Right. Is, are we saying it's along that line? Exactly. We, we use, we use analogies of alcohol, a, a tremendous amount. And, and yeah, so the bartender's interest is in not getting sued. And so they're going to try and take steps and, and and they know that there's a bright line. I think the one thing that's different and, and your I think your listeners will appreciate this uh, in, in alcohol, there's a dram shop law, you know, it comes down from ancient England and it's been codified in the United States. It sets pretty clearly where the responsibility of the operate of the bar ends and, and the individual begins and where there's liability. And if you cross that line, you can be held you know, liable. We don't have a, the equivalent of a dram shop law in gambling. Like there's not, because there's no physical substance, it's very hard to say, you know, Rufus, you were over, overserved, right? Like you were extended too much credit or they let you gamble for 24 hours straight or blah, 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 blah. So one of the really interesting policy kind of legal areas is where is the, the duty of care uh, for the operator? And, and I, I do think one will, will, will come, but it's, and it's kind of an abstract legal issue, but it would have real world implications. You know, because then, you know, you'd be able to say, how much is too much? Is it some certain multiple of bets? Is it, you know, can you not gamble for more than 48 hours straight? Blah, blah, blah. You can conceive a lot of stuff. That So I guess the long way is saying, 
I think your your example with alcohol is, is exactly right. And that's where we hope to get with gambling. It, it seems to me, I mean, that the issue, like getting back to the incentives, and, and I think Jeff and I very much as gamblers think very much in terms of incentives, is yeah. that for all these individual operators, um, sorry for speaking for you, Jeff, but for all these individual operators, their incentive right now is market share. And like FanDuel is in DraftKings are duking it out for that number one spot, which is going to help them down the line. And so they they want to court these whales, these these big betters. And if they happen to be problem gamblers, that's, you know, if if they probably feel like if they're not doing it, if DraftKings isn't doing it, then FanDuel is going to do it and take this guy and, and reap the rewards, right? And so they don't have the incentive to stop. They'd be at a competitive advantage or disadvantage. So it, it makes me think that we need regulation to sort like we need real hard lines to draw somehow uh, at the regulatory level, just so that everybody's playing the same game. I, I absolutely agree with you. And that's why, you know, we would be foolish to only rely on the, the goodwill of the operators. So we, we spend a lot of our time, as you mentioned, on, on the policy, on the advocacy side, working with both legislators and, and regulators. You know, so the legislators, we want to get as much and as strict responsible gambling standards into the bills as possible, that that end of it. And then we work with regulators to, to put stuff together that makes those that legislation effective at, at reducing harm. So like a great example is New Jersey. New Jersey adopted our internet responsible gambling standards into their into their online regulations. Um, and they've 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 even taken a further step where now operators in New Jersey, online operators in New Jersey are required to screen for certain markers of gambling related harm. Things like often reversing your withdrawals, right? So that, that I think I think you know your folks are going to get that a lot. If you're if you're someone who, say, you know, they're, they're, okay, you're going to cash out, and then you reverse your withdrawal, and you do that over and over again, that that may well be a sign that that you're you're experiencing some, some gambling problems. Well, should and you so, have the opportunity to do that? I mean, you do. It's terrifying. I know that to me, they, it is so much harder to withdraw money than it is to deposit. Yeah. Shouldn't we be doing those checks when players deposit? Yes. Yeah. And so we think you know, deposit limits are a feature of like our inner responsible gambling standards. And, and just to be clear, the industry is no angel. They were, they've, many of the operators in New Jersey were fined because they were making not just withdrawals administratively hard. You know, there's no reason to wait a week, you know, to get your money out. Right. That's, but well, it's literally, was, it's literally so that you can think about it and say, oh, I want to keep betting. Yes. Well, and what it's was happening though, it got worse. In New Jersey, the VIP hosts, you know, so you try, you you put in withdrawal request while you're waiting for that it, just bogus administrative time. Your host would call you up and say, Rufus, are you sure you really want to withdraw? I can, they could, they would even bonus you and say, okay, here's 10% on the money, you know, to come back and, and keep playing. And, the, and when the regulator heard about that, when we heard about that, we worked with the regulator to, to prohibit that. So it's, it's, there's, you know, if you're only relying on an operator self-regulation, you'll never, you'll never go anywhere because the incentives, you know, can, can really be misaligned, but that's why you have to have levers at the legislative level, at the legal level, the regulatory level, and then the public and press, you know, that, that, that can, that played a really powerful role in the backlash in the UK. Uh, when, when the public opinion shifted against the industry, when they just said it's too much and politicians then, you know, kind of fell in line. What can we as betters and, and our seven listeners do to sort of, because right now it feels like betters don't really have a voice in in the sort of legislative, well, in, in the writing of the legislation and just in the whole ecosystem, it's it's all the operators, it's well, the leads. Rufus, just one, one thing that's interesting though, it, when you talk about what voice betters can have, 
and our seven listeners, there are probably some guardrails that are in place for the average recreational better that we would say we don't need, right? Because we believe that we're, you know, like- Income verification, right? Or like just anything, right? Like if you lose too much, right? Like, is there, is there some, if you are a, an advantage player and there are guardrails up to prevent- you know, regular recreational betting, like like the sort of degenerate behavior or something like that, mm-hmm. those are probably going to get in your way of like bankroll management or whatever you're trying to do ultimately, right? And and again, yeah. like the the notion of the advantage gambler versus the recreational gambler from a regulatory standpoint is is a challenging one. Oh, I think it's one of the, it's it's such an interesting issue. So I would say most of our responsible gambling tools are crude, and many of them are tuned or oriented towards, like you said, a kind of a, a low-level recreational better who stumbles into a problem and you know blah blah blah. Um, when you look at many of the things in our field on the responsible gambling side and the problem gambling side, professional gamblers, heavy players, you know, not non-problem gamblers, but heavy recreational gamblers, most of these tools are like you said, they may not apply or they're not, they're not fit for purpose. Right. So here's, here's a great example. I have this discussion with poker players all the time and, and probably a lot of pro sports betters too. If, if you just took a standard gambling addiction screen and they ask you things like, are you often preoccupied about your gambling? Do you often bet till your last dollar? <laughs> if, if you're playing in a freeze out tournament, of course you bet till your last dollar has gone. Right. You know, if, if this is your full-time life of, you know, you, you are, you're thinking about it every day. So blah, blah, blah. Like many, many heavy recreational gamblers I know who absolutely do not have a problem still meet just about every criteria for gambling addiction. So, so our criteria, our tools do, do a very, very poor job at separating out, distinguishing, you know, pros and sharps from problem players. Right. And, and some of it of course is, I also know many people with gambling problems who will tell me I am absolutely a professional gambler. And I'll say, why? And they say, well, I lost my job. So my only income is really from gambling. You know, I I do think about this 24 hours a day, you know, and it's not just they have bad bankroll management. It's that many of them have a serious mental health disorder. But so, so from both sides, you know, there, there are, there are pro players who act in ways that would show them on a screen as absolutely gambling addiction. And they absolutely do not have it. You know, and then and then there are, are people with gambling problems who will tell you that they're a pro gambler, you know, that they're always, they're they're just temporarily down on their, you know, they got they had 15 bad beats in a row and they didn't mean to lose their house, but they're gonna buy another one next week because they're gonna win. So 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 I guess I guess the point, Jeff, is yes, on the problem gambling screens, on the RG tools, you know, because we talk about things like, oh, setting a limit on the on the amount of time you spend betting. Well, for you guys, that's probably laughable because you you may well bet, you know throughout the day. Um, but you're in control. And so what I, what I tell people, and I, it's, it's a fascinating thing to have, especially over drinks with folks. Cause yeah, I, I know, I know a lot of professional gamblers. I think the thing, the crystal, the crystal nub that I've come to in the last 30 years is it's mostly why you're gambling. Like if, if you're gambling because it's a profession, because you're good at it, because, you know, you don't have any leakage because it's just a job that's that's probably incredibly low risk. If you're gambling because you're pissed off or you got divorced or you have to make rent this week, like that to me, you know, you, you can look at the different outcomes, different categories, different, you know, criteria. But for me, it's it's motivation. And and, and, and again, motivation is tough. I mean, if you're being honest with yourself and, you, and you're representing your motivation, you know, kind of truthfully, 
that's probably what helps distinguish you and, and your seven listeners from people that are you know, have severe problems and, and aren't in control. So I, I think the, the, yeah, I so. think the main issue about why this is difficult is it's sort of endemic to the problem, meaning that there isn't a big difference in behavior between someone that's yeah. a degenerate and someone that's a professional in some respects. And like, even just this motivation question you just said, like, if you're a professional gambler, you are gambling to make your rent, right? That is, that is the reason you're doing it. So it's not, it's not, you know, and so, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, it's, it's fascinating because we, Rufus and I, he wanted to talk a little bit about sort of the idea of advantage players and what issues that they get into. Rufus, yeah, you want to move there, into there, there'll be lots, lots of feedback from the listeners because this is such a challenging point and, you know, we don't try and pathologize everybody, but we don't, we also say, we know that there are people in this community who are one bet away from losing everything, you know, who, who really aren't in control, you know, who this is causing a lot of harm to, but, but sort of distinguishing, yeah, kind of segregating that out or splitting it out is, uh, is, is, yeah, I don't have the perfect answer, but it's, it's a, it's a, it's always a good conversation to have. So wait, can we take that? Like, I know you've, you've made the analogy to alcohol and, and substance abuse before. So there's people that suffer from alcoholism and then there are people that are maybe heavy drinkers that or people that you know occasionally will will you know if they had a rough day or something maybe drink a little more than they should and things like that are there there's this whole spectrum though right and so what does that look like for gambling problem gambling because i know there's what, there's comp there's a few percent that are compulsive gamblers is that right and then yeah yeah, so in the general public, you'd break it down. In the United States, you'd say roughly 2% of adults meet criteria for gambling addiction in a given year. But of course, we know not everybody gambles. So when you look at, you know, have you gambled in the past year, which is a wide gate, that's roughly 85% of adults, about 5%. So 5% of adults would meet criteria for a gambling problem in a given year. And then, but within that 5%, it's on a continuum. I mean, there's people at, at the end of that that are really heavy, you know, really, really people that are just pathological, out of control. But then there's a lot of people that have mild to moderate problems. And there's a tremendous amount of transition. You know, so this is not a linear thing. You know, I mean, there are people that stop and start or, you know, they, they really got a bad run with sports betting, but they're they're really good card players. Um, you know, and then there's all sorts of things that that sort of influence their life. You know, their wife is going to leave them unless they stop. And so they do. But maybe that's permanent. Maybe it's not. So there's a lot of transition in that 5% of people going from mild to severe, back down to mild. Sometimes they go all the way. Sometimes they, they you know, transition out. And, and we know that treatment works, you know, so people can get help. It's, so it's a great, it, it's a good question. And then within that 5%, so you look at some of the different verticals, and this is something that Rufus and I talked to, talked a lot about. There, there are certain patterns of behavior. There are certain types of gambling that may be more risky than others. Um, and then that also, so you, 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 you look at the the biopsychosocial model. You know, what is it in your nature? What is it in your 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 dopamine system, if you will, um, your family history that may make you more or less at risk? And then what is it about your psychology? Again, that kind of motivation. Why you're gambling you know, what, what you're doing in the rest of your life, if you're in a good relationship or you're not, you know, um, and then there's the sociology of who you're gambling with, where, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and all those factors are mutable. So it's, it's a really complex, fascinating, but complex set of risk factors. But the good news is the end of the day is the vast majority of people who gamble 
will never develop a problem. And that's and that's reassuring to everybody. And that those people who do who are at risk or do develop a problem, we can help them. You know, we we can we can help you at any stage where you are on that journey from just maybe thinking that sports betting might not be your thing to having lost the house and be standing on the edge of the parking garage, you know, when you call it under gambler, because that's, you know, and we've taken, we take those calls somewhat frequently, you know, that, you know, I'm, I'm at the end of my rope and, you know, I need help. So it's never too late though. That's, that's the other, the other message. I spent some time on the problem gambling um, subreddit today in preparation for this and saw a lot, like it's quite disturbing what, I mean, yeah. Yeah. It can be. And and that's one of the great things about social norms. That's one of the great things about being on this podcast. So people can understand it, you know, it's okay to talk about, you know, we, we don't talk about gambling often openly. And it was one of the fascinating things about the blackjack ball. You know, I mean, it's, you you know, many, many sharps, many pros have had to live sort of, you know, pseudonyms and underground and, you know, and it's, it's, it's all, but it's only, I think when we, when we can all talk about it, have an open and honest conversation that you can, you can create understanding, destigmatize things and help everyone, you know, kind of try and make more informed decisions around their gambling across the lifespan. It's interesting. Um, for example, let's say professional poker players. I, I know a good number of those who are awful sports bettors and kind of degenerate sports bettors, I'll be honest. And because I mean, I think that the two don't necessarily go well together to be a successful poker player. You need to be confident and really trust your intuition and and you're essentially your gut and that does not really work in sports betting. Right. But, yeah. but I think, but yet they, uh, there's people that like win money playing poker, throw a lot of it away. Like where would those, I mean, clearly they're very good at playing poker and so they're making it their livelihood, but where are, are there people, are there professional gamblers that you would say actually have gambling problems? Yeah. In fact, I know folks that will that have limited themselves severely or excluded themselves from particular verticals because they just they just you know they can't walk past the craps table without giving it all back. They're stone cold poker players. So we we it was funny we when we built our first internet responsible gambling standards in 2012, some friends at Poker Stars were advising us, and we said, okay, if if you're going to exclude yourself from from gambling, you know, we're, we, you should just exclude yourself from the whole site because, you know. Gambling is gambling is gambling. And the poker stars folks said, oh, that's that's dumb. You know, what, what you need to do is give people the flexibility to make informed choices because there might well, as you say, might be well, a stone cold poker player can't 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 walk past the sports book without giving it all back. And and that creates a it creates a thing. So we're not, you know, we, we don't want to um uh not, not penalize people, but we don't want to be um over prohibitive. You know, so, so, you know, we are, are a lot of our models on responsible gambling are about informed choice and, and sort of flexibility. The user should select what they want to exclude themselves from, how long. And we don't say that if you exclude yourself from poker, you also have to exclude yourself from, you know, sports. So, yes, it definitely happens. That is where some of the analogies to alcohol break down, because, you know, if, if you're an alcoholic, it's not just you're addicted to, to wine, but you can have a, you can have a gin and tonic and you're good. You know, I mean, it's that alcohol is probably going to affect you the same way. It may, you may socialize a little differently when you're drinking a martini versus a, a Bud Light, but with gambling, uh, it's, it's not true. I mean, you know, we, we, we know some people who can't gamble period, you know, it doesn't matter what vertical they're, they're, they're in trouble, but there's more than a few that, that only have problems with certain games. 
I, I personally self-excluded from vodka for many years. <laughs> happily. Yeah, I, I had a bad tequila experience that, uh, um, you know, I think many of us did. Um, we did 10 years without tequila. No, it's interesting that you mentioned like the the craps analogy and the games analogy, because as a professional blackjack player, like there's no part of me that would ever be like have a problem with like blackjack. It's just such a clinical game. Yeah. It's like like I will I was at a casino in um Coos Bay, Oregon, going abandoned dunes, and my buddies all were playing blackjack. And you know, I they they were it was a pretty good blackjack game, meaning it was a good cut card and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And they were playing, you know, 100, 200, 300. I think the limits were 500. And, you know, I was playing like quarters or a hundred. I just didn't, I didn't want anyone to get upset about me playing. So I was just kind of like, but I literally had to walk away from the table anytime the count went negative, even though it was like, you know, betting quarters. Like I just couldn't bring myself to like play negative EV, but like I'll, you know, back in the day, play some craps and know that it's negative EV and and be annoyed and and whatnot. So it, it definitely is a different, uh mentality between the games it's interesting but it's what you said that i think is fascinating because you know you you can you can play for entertainment you know and, and but like if you're conscious of that um but you probably don't play the lottery a lot because you know you talk about negative ev right so it, it's it's you know, people engage for different reasons but some of that goes back to your motivation yeah if you're just out with friends you're having fun you can get into a game where you know you're not necessarily even counting or it's probably second nature to you by now but you know, because it's it's a social game and you're having fun, but it's it's a lot different when you're playing, you know, for real, if you will. I mean, the I, problem the problem that I've always had at, in this world is just the idea of, like, I I wouldn't take a negative EV bet. I re- I really wouldn't. But like, how do you know that your EV bet in sports betting is remaining to be positive? And Rufus and I talk about this all the time. Uh, and this is like, and I I was on John Reader's podcast and talked about like the the search for positive EV and like that constant search that that in itself is a bit of an addiction to try to feel like you can find the you know positive EV and <laughs> keeping searching for that and keeping believing that you have that positive EV yeah yeah it's fascinating well I mean you know a lot of life is negative EV you know at some point you know driving and flying and a lot of things we do aren't necessarily or or it depends on you know what what your terms are. Right. And, and we don't need to get to the, to the deep philosophy of it. But yeah, it's it's the, the, if you're thinking rationally about gambling, you know, it clearly it's better than if you're, you're not. And if you're playing with your head, it's it's usually it's almost always better than playing with your heart. But we know people that play with their head that still get into trouble because, you know, it you know, you 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 can't necessarily control for your heredity. You can't really control for the way your dopamine reacts or you can't control for other external factors you know, you may be a great poker player and then you go through a terrible divorce or you have a parent that dies or you're disabled yourself and that changes your whole perspective on, on the game. Um, you know, we see that happen a lot with people that, you know, maybe go through life, um, you know, heavy recreational, even pro, and then they have some negative external life event that changes their their relationship to gambling and causes them to now come into it with a lot more risk doesn't mean they have a problem but it means they're approaching it a lot differently and so it's something for your for for the, the seven listeners to watch out for just because you're doing it well now and you've got good results and you know you're you're, you're really good at it doesn't mean that if something 
if something changes, you'll always be able to play that way. It's just, it's just something to keep in mind. I mean, also what happens if you lose your edge? I mean, this is something I've thought about a lot over the years. Like what, like um, I've, I've, you know, I've acknowledged to myself that maybe I'm not always going to be, have an edge in, in certain sports and, will I be able to sort of let go and, 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 or will I try to convince myself that I still do and I'm just running poorly? Right. Right. Yeah. It's tough. Yeah. Cause it doesn't have, it doesn't have to have anything to do with addiction. It just, it may have, you know, the, there's the rest of the world's caught up or, you know, they're reading Billy Walter's book and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So they're, you know, they're looking for that little edge too. I think that, yeah, it's more about identity there, right? Yeah. <laughs> Rufus, do you have any more questions for Keith? I think we've, I mean, there's, there's a lot of questions that we still didn't cover that I put there, but I think we covered a pretty, pretty um, broad spectrum of things. Maybe the last thing is, is the way sports betting is, and I guess I casino too, um, is marketed. I find to be something that's problematic and it's kind of where, you know, our alcohol analogy, there are safeguards alcohol and tobacco are not marketed the same way that sports betting is sports betting is you know i mean we you know risk-free bet like it's yeah. you it's essentially selling you on it's giving you a free win so that you get that dopamine hit and you get addicted to it right or you get conditioned it's it's mm-hmm. i mean these things are designed with that in mind and so on the national council of problem gambling's website it did say that problem gamblers are essentially they're born and not made. Yeah. I think but, it's, it's a bit of both. Right. But like, let's say I, I mean, think about people that were addicted to tobacco. I mean, many of them, if they hadn't tried tobacco, they wouldn't be addicted to it. Yes. And so and I it, think, sorry. No, sorry. No, I was gonna say, we know that uh, the earlier you start gambling, the more likely you are to have a problem. And even that said, most people who start gambling early will never have a problem, but it's it's predictive. So if you start, so in North America, the average problem gambler that comes in for treatment, if you say, okay, you know, problem gambler X, when did you start gambling? If you're male, it's between 12 and 13 years old. For for females, it's it's older. But that doesn't mean that everybody that starts at 12 or 13 is going to have a gambling problem. It just means much like tobacco, there there's sort of an incredible relationship between youth access, youth participation, and problems in later life. So most kids who start gambling at that early age, as I did, you know, around around the table with, you know, with family, you know, we played, you know, whatever, you know, nickel poker. Um, I've never developed a problem and I, and I probably never will, but it's more likely the earlier. So yes, Rufus, to your point, the earlier you start gambling, the more likely you are to have a problem, even though the numbers are still in your favor. So reducing youth access, making sure that we're age gating advertising, making sure that the sites are are living their KYC. Um, there's a whole lot more policy that needs to happen. You know, in launching countervailing things, I think this is something that we talk about a lot. If the industry is spending uh, roughly two two and a half billion dollars a year on on sports betting ads, the National Council is spending fifty thousand dollars. So, so we can, but we can change that. You know, we we can get some money. We've got a we've got a PSA. Some of your viewers may have seen the Kurt Warner ad that the NFL's uh, producing for us. So, you know, now now we've got that megaphone, and so we're evening the odds, if you will, a little bit um, with the promotion because we want young gamblers or gamblers to hear from us just as much as they're hearing from the industry. I mean, they'll never hear from it. It'll never be equitable. But I think that's that's a goal, and that's one of the ways to to reduce risk across the system. 
is to make sure we're we're doing a lot better in the prevention and public awareness side. And there's a lot of commercial tools and a lot of potential partners we can use to to do that. As you said, they're, they're, the amount they're spending is always going to dwarf it. I feel like the way to change things would be policy side and say, okay, you cannot advertise this way. You can't, you know, in a, just like they do for tobacco. This is a Ooh. harmful product. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if there was legislation introduced in Congress to, uh, well, I mean, there said so there is. There, who's going to introduce it? Yeah, he's introduced legislation to ban sports betting ads. I don't think that's going anywhere. No. But I think as this grows, it's it's just begging for national scrutiny. So, and this is, I, it's not being pushed by the National Council, but when we're on the Hill, we hear members of Congress and staff all the time saying, I am just bombarded by sports betting ads. I'm sick of it. My kid can't watch the game without, without constantly getting ads shoved in their face. And I think someone should do something about that. And, you know, just like we saw with alcohol and tobacco, there's often a, a the surge, you know, maybe it's you go as far as you can until someone pushes back. And, I, and frankly, I think that's the approach of a lot of operators. Like you said earlier, they're fighting for market share. They're, you know, they're going to, they're going to push as hard as they can until they have to walk it back. But there's a lot of, there's a lot of folks and there's a lot of levers that people can use in the policy world to, to start to work that back. Awesome. Well, Keith, thanks for joining us. This has been fascinating, definitely a little bit different than we normally do and <laughs> yeah. uh, really appreciate the time. Really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, no, I love it. Um, anytime. It's it's uh, again, we 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 learn so much from uh, from talking to y'all, and uh, I think it's just I think it's fun. Yeah, you because know, the end of the day, for most people, the vast majority of people, gambling's entertainment, and it's great to talk to people that think deeply about it. You know, like like you do, like advantage players do, and it's a fascinating perspective on this. All too often, from the national council's perspective, we're we're only focusing on the the two to three percent, and that's a pretty grim group but it's it's nice to talk to the not just the other 97% but the folks that are at that extreme edge of of actually doing it and doing it well awesome thank you keith all right thanks guys